How do we act when bad things happen to us? We always have a choice. We can retaliate, we can throw a pity party, we can blame others, or we can trust God no matter what and try to respond in the way He wants us to. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. In this podcast, I'm reminding myself as much as all of you that circumstances never force us to act in a way that God doesn't want us to. And for our inspiration in this, we'll look at how the Apostle Paul responded in a very difficult situation. Here was his situation. He had spent 10 years since he became a Christian, constantly traveling, sharing Jesus, starting churches. He worked with a large and often changing team of fellow evangelists, pastors, teachers, and we see how he mentions them in the different books that he writes. He planned to go to Rome, but he goes to Jerusalem first, and that resulted in two years of imprisonment on his way to Rome. Now, once he was there in Rome, he was changed to a Roman guard for two more years. Though he really didn't know how long it was going to last, he didn't know if he would be there for 20 years or whatever, or if he would be killed shortly. He just, he didn't know. So keep in mind that when he's writing what we're talking about, his life was really much more in limbo than we realize as we look back on it. Well, in this really difficult situation, what was his response? Overall and always, we can see that he constantly prayed. We're going to look at his prayers and really the amazing content that's in them. And one of the things that really struck me as I was studying and preparing for this lesson is he almost never mentions his prison conditions. You'd never think they were written by someone who is in prison, who is chained to a Roman guard. And these were not comfy little chains. They were very heavy. They cut into the skin. They were this rusty, rotten old iron. They weren't the nice, shiny handcuffs that we see put on in television programs. But he never, ever really mentions that. He keeps his eye on his mission and his people. And so we're going to briefly go over the books that he wrote that are called the Prison Letters. These include Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the book of Philemon. And we will look at primarily his prayers and his focus in them. Now the pattern overall in much of his writing is can be summarized in this way. First, orthodoxy, then orthopraxy. <laughs> what we mean by that is orthodoxy is right thinking, orthopraxy is right conduct. And what he does, he started out doing this in the book of Romans, and we talked about it. In Romans, he first sets out, this is what you are supposed to believe. But our beliefs should always then inspire us to live in a certain way. So here's what you believe, here's how you should live. Now let's look at this pattern in the different books. First of all, in the book of Ephesians, he founded the church there, he spent two years there, and this book is not really addressing any particular error. Some of the different ones that he writes are, but but not this one. In this one, as one commentator said, he really wants to expand the vision of the church. He talks a lot about the heavenly realms in the book of Ephesians. Now, as I was reading that, I was thinking about that, I was reminded of that saying where they say that, um, you know, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I thought, you know, that's really wrong. Because in reality, true reality, 
unless we're heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. Our true reality, both now and in our future, is that Christ is in control. He is, as the Bible tells us, seated in the heavenlies. He is in control of our life. One day we're going to be with him. And Paul lived knowing that the most terrible things that can happen here and now really were nothing compared to that. As one writer said that no matter how difficult life might be, once we get to heaven, we will look back and our past will be like a night's one night spent in a bad hotel. And I, I really like that because it's, it's true. Now, here's where our focus needs to be, according to Paul. This is Ephesians 1, chapter 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. His first prayer in this book, this is Ephesians 1.3, is a prayer of real praise. He isn't looking at his chains. He is looking up at the heavenly realms. And because of this, a little bit later on in the chapter, he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great, can't hardly say that, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. Now, focus on this. He keeps asking, he says, that God will give us, give his people a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. And I find this such a challenging prayer because he says not only that you'll know Jesus better, but that you'll really understand, he says, the riches of the glorious inheritance he says he has for you. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, we, we all know, I trust or many of you, if you haven't, I, I encourage you to explore it more, that you know Jesus is Savior, but there's so much more to him. We can learn so much more about him, and the more we know him, we can trust him. And then the more we understand the hope to which he's called us. If we truly believe that heaven is our home, that we are going towards that, that everything is safe and good and wonderful there, if we truly, truly believe that in light of no matter what we're going through, I think it would make a huge difference. And the thing I had to ask myself as I was studying this is, do I really want that in my life? 
do I honestly want to be the kind of person who is focused on eternity, or I'm afraid it's just going to make me weird? <laughs> and the jury's still out on that. Um, no, actually, I, I really do want that. But it's in some ways, if you think about it deeply and what it really means, it's kind of a scary prayer. But I encourage us all, God allowed the Apostle Paul to write it, that we do pray that God would enable us to know him better and that we would understand the hope that we have. Next, the book of Colossians. Now, the theme of Colossians is the complete adequacy of Christ, as contrasted with the emptiness of some human philosophies. And this is the book that really has the clearest statements that Jesus was God in human form. Let me read this to you in Colossians 1.15, because I still hear people say things like, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really claim Jesus was God. You know, he was a good man, and he did all this good stuff, but not that he was God. Oh, that's just not true. You just have to read the right books, and Colossians is one to read. So in Colossians 1.15, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that little verse that, you know, we are held together in Christ in, in addition to the world and the cosmos and everything, but I find that verse particularly comforting. But going on, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross now much of the book deals with different false beliefs that people had about jesus but Paul wants people to know this is who Jesus is. And again, he prays that they will be filled with ever-growing knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that they can conduct themselves worthy of the Lord. Once again, he asks that people understand God's will, and then he also asks that they have the power to perform that will. William Barclay comments on this where he says, Prayer begins by asking that we may be filled with an ever-growing knowledge of God. We're trying not so much to make God listen to us as to make us listen to Him. We're not trying to persuade God what we want, but to find out what He wants. And he goes on to say that, sadly, what usually actually happens in prayer is we, in reality, say to God, Thy will be changed when instead we need to be saying, Thy will be done. He sums it up by saying the first object of prayer is not so much to speak to God as to listen to Him. And then he goes on to say that the knowledge that we get needs to be translated into our human situations. He, but one of the things that I really like about Barclay is he's really great in how he analyzes the original words. And he talks about how in the Greek there's 
actually two words that we sometimes translate wisdom or understanding. And he says spiritual wisdom is a Greek word Sophia, which we could describe as the knowledge of first principles, of truths, of things that are just universally true. And then understanding is synesis, which is what the Greeks described as critical knowledge or the ability to apply first principles to any given situation of life. So you see, when Paul prays for people that they might have wisdom and understanding, he's praying that they may understand the great truths of Christianity and then might be able to apply them to the tasks and the decisions which they meet in everyday living. And that is so good, because if we don't do that, what good does does it do us to learn these things? He goes on to say, a man may quite easily be a master of theology and a failure in living, able to write and talk about eternal truths, and yet helpless to apply them to the things which meet him every day. The Christian must know what Christianity means, not in a vacuum, but in the business of living. This knowledge of God's will and his wisdom and understanding must issue in right conduct. Paul prays that his friends may conduct themselves in such a way as to please God. There is nothing in this world so practical as prayer. It is not an escape from reality. Prayer and action go hand in hand. We pray not in order to escape life, but to be able to better meet it. And I love that. We don't try to just get into some otherworldly thing when we pray, but we ask for God's help that we might do what he wants us to do. And so he encourages the Colossians to pray. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, isn't that an extraordinary prayer? Because he says, you know, I'm in chains. He just kind of mentions that in passing. But he doesn't focus on that. He doesn't say, get me out of this or uh, help see easier to take pity on me or you know the food's really awful here and I need something better he says no he his ministry he says pray that God may open a door for our message pray that we may proclaim it clearly that is what God has called him to do and that's his focus Then the book of Philemon, it's just a short little book, and Paul writes this letter to Philemon, who is a believer in Colossae, along with others, and he was actually a slave owner, and one of his slaves, Onesimus, had run away, and apparently somehow or other linked up with Paul in Rome, where he'd become a Christian. Now, running away was punishable by death, but Onesimus has become a Christian, Paul sends him back to Colossae, and writes this personal appeal basing, basically asking that he accept, that Philemon accept Onesimus as a Christian brother. And one of his prayers too, in addition to that, I think it's kind of interesting where he says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. And Did you see what he said there? He said, I want you to be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of everything that we have in Christ. You see, when we share our faith, 
that's where we see what we really have in Christ. I think this happens for a lot of reasons. We see changed lives. We have the ability to do something maybe we never thought we could do before. So that is his prayer in Philemon. Then moving along to Philippians, the church at Philippi had a really special significance for Paul. It was the first church he founded in Europe. His first convert was Lydia. She was a seller of purple, which was a very big deal back then. She was apparently a very wealthy businesswoman, and she uh, continued to have a very prominent role in the church. Now, he was briefly incarcerated there in Philippi. This is a story, if you remember, where he was he and Silas were flogged and thrown into prison, and it says they were singing and praising God, and the other prisoners are kind of sitting there listening and going, oh, these people are really crazy. But then God intervenes, and their chains are broken off. The jailer runs in, and Paul's yelling, it's okay, it's okay, we're all here. And the jailer, actually thinking of his physical safety, he goes, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, of course, turns it right into a message of sharing the gospel where he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And it says the jailer and all his family were converted. So the story of um, uh, that happened there and knowing this, it really makes the church was very special to him. And Paul goes on and he founds a church there. And his primary reason, though, for writing was he was thanking them for the gifts that they had given him. You see, in Rome, you when you were in prison, the the government didn't pay for your upkeep. Uh, friends, family had to give things to you or you were in pretty bad shape. And by the way, just a little parenthesis here, we have um, known people in, well, no, in, presently involved with some people who are in prison today. And one thing that I would really encourage all of your churches to do is to begin a prison ministry, in part because people in the prison system today, it's a very, very bad situation, particularly with the privately run prisons. And this has happened with a number of people. So I know it's not just an isolated instance and in a number of states where we've been involved with people. But in many of the prisons, many of the jails today, prisoners, unless family and friends give things to them, they do not get any toiletries. They don't have soap. They don't have shampoo. They don't have deodorant. They don't have toothpaste. They don't have any of those things. Family members have to provide them. And of course, there's companies that are very happy to do that for a interesting price, or you can give money into their, what they call their commissary fund, and they can get them. But it's a very tough situation uh, to make phone calls. They charge excessively for the phone calls. People have to give them money for that. And it's a hard, hard, hard situation for people. And so um, really very similar to how it was in Paul's time in that without those gifts, people are in a very bad place. And so I would encourage your churches to become involved in this. People uh, people in prison that we, we've become involved with, they're so appreciative of it. And of course, it, it does give you the opportunity to share a lot about your faith.
But moving right along in uh, Philippians, not only does Paul thank them for their gifts, but he encourages them to stand firm and to walk worthy in the face of persecution. And one of the most incredible passages, one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament, is what's called the Kenosis passage. And this is where he's talking about serving each other, and he gives the example of Jesus. Kenosis means emptying. And this is the passage that really talks about how Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature when he came to earth. And let me just read this passage to you. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And you see, here again, Paul's emphasis on teaching even this huge lesson of great theology of how Jesus emptied his divine attributes attributes to become human. He's doing it to teach people that this is the way they should be humble and serve one another. And he goes on and he says, again, very similar prayer to what he prayed in some of the others. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You see, love to Paul and really the biblical picture of it, it isn't just this mushy emotional feeling. It's something practical. It has sort of, you might say, hands and feet to it. We deal with people in very practical ways. Our love for God and our actions towards others should go far beyond our emotions response. But, of course, we aren't required to do this alone. He goes on to say, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this carrying it on to completion it actually comes from the word epiteleo in the Greek, and epi means to intensify whatever is following, and teleo means to make an end. And he's going, just God will carry out the work that he started in you to the very finish, that he will super do that, that he will finish the work that he started in you and to make you like Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said in commenting on this, he said, the life of a Christian is a series of miracles where God just continues to work in us and continues to work in us and continues to work in us. And he was also asked by a minister one time whether he believed in the final perseverance of the saints, which means, you know, do you believe in eternal security? Can people lose their salvation or will they persevere? And Spurgeon says, well... He says, I don't know much about that, but I firmly believe in the final perseverance of God, that where he has begun a good work, he will carry it on until it's complete. And so with that in mind, with that total security 
of God in mind that he's working in us. Then he goes on and he says, so don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in, living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And then he talks about, again, being thankful for their gift. Now, I have to comment on that verse. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It is so twisted. It is so misunderstood and misused. Because a lot of times people just go, I can do all things through Christ. And so they think they can go out and be whatever. Um, But that's not what he means. He couldn't do all things. He was chained to a Roman guard. He was in prison. What he means is that he can handle every circumstance God gives him. Whether he's abased, abounding, free, chained to a guard, in prison, whatever. Circumstances were never a deterrent for doing God's will. And really, the King James translation of this is really bad because, again, it says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That puts the emphasis on me being strong. But let me read it to you in some other versions. Young's translation says, For all things I have strength in Christ strengthening me. And then in the Phillips translation, it says, In general and in particular, I have learned the secret of facing either poverty or plenty. I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. And then in the message it says, wherever, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. In summary, he's saying that we can get through anything because of the Lord's help. And then a final prayer for that book. And I think that sums up all of his prison letters is where he prays, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You know, God's grace is all of the gifts that we have. Forgiveness, eternal life, strength to get through anything that comes up in our lives, and the assurance that the Lord will help us make it successfully through to the time that we meet Him. We didn't earn or deserve anything for our salvation. Our glorious future is a gift of pure grace. And so this is a wonderful prayer in every situation that God's grace be with us all in everything. And may that reality truly be reflected in all our lives. That's all for now. Please download the notes from this lesson there on www.bible805.com and do subscribe to the podcast so that you don't really miss anything that I hope will encourage you. Now until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word 
and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.